0: hey guys welcome to another episode of going pro i'm lauren withrow here with abby jones and today we are talking basketball we're going to be talking with tim mccormick tim played the university of michigan then he went on to play 10 seasons in the nba currently he is a director of player programs for the nbpa and also serves as an analyst for the nba and college hoops all right tim mccormick thank you so much for being with us today
1: my pleasure how are you guys doing
0: we're doing well, happy to have basketball back.
1: I think it's been phenomenal that the, the bubble works and the virus isn't gonna stop on its own. And, and I think that by trying to live real life like football and baseball are, are planning on, I don't, I don't see it working. And the NBA has a model that, that is successful. It wouldn't surprise me if we see basketball start in a bubble in December this year. And I think there are models in college basketball that could work as well. So this has been really amazing to sit back and watch. It's disappointing and frightening and scary and everything else. But I I guess it's one of those scenarios that in sports like you keep getting knocked down and beat up and disappointed along the way. And the people that are able to figure out how to stay busy and active and keep getting better are the ones that, that succeed.
0: Mm -hmm. So going back a little bit, you played four years at the University of Michigan and then 10 seasons in the NBA. Can you picture this scenario happening when you were playing in the NBA? Do you think the bubble would have even been possible when you were playing in the 80s and 90s?
1: Yeah, I don't think it would have, uh, partially because technology has advanced to the point where you can televise all of these games and with the um, the the testing is probably the biggest issue because y- you you can't have a bubble if there's not constant testing and it, the testing reinforces that players are safe and you're doing a good job. So this is this is um, unprecedented and and I think that the uh, there there's no way this would have happened in the past.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that that's something that we're kind of gonna talk more in detail later, but I think we kind of want to set it up so that our audience gets to know you. So was basketball always the dream?
1: Yeah, Abby, so I I was the the little boy that carried my basketball cards around in my (laughs) pocket and I dribbled to school in the morning and dribbled home afterward and played at recess. And I laid in bed at night, dreaming about playing in the NBA, listening to the Detroit Pistons games on the radio. And I cut out pictures of my favorite players from Sports Illustrated and pasted them on the wall next to my bed. So I was all in and, and it, it certainly helps to grow to be seven foot tall, <laughs> um, but, but I was all in from a very young age. My dad helped me create a game plan when I was probably in seven you know, or when I was seven or eight years old. And he said, if you want to be really good, you've got to do it every day. And I did. Um, you know, that included dribbling around the block twice with my right hand and then twice with my left hand and taking 100 game caliber shots and dribbling up and down the basement stairs. And I think it was all just a tool from my father to to, to try to get me to, to shovel the driveway in the winter with <laughs> snow. And uh, but it was it was really a, a lifelong passion.
2: That's incredible. And I love those stories and the memories that you have with your dad. But who were the who were your top players that you cut out and always kind of put by your bed? Who were the cards of?
1: It was pretty amazing because I a lot of them I had a chance to get to know uh, either through um, events working with the NBA Players Association which has been my job for the last 25 or 30 years. Um Playing with Dr. J was just incredible playing against Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I was in the same draft as Michael Jordan. I actually sat in the room right next to him. He was drafted number three. I was number 12. Um, So yeah, I, 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 I actually feel like that I was the little kid that had these huge dreams and had these, these idols and, and to be able to, to play against them and to meet them. It's been a surreal experience for sure.
0: Going back to the draft, when you were the 12th pick in 84, like you said, Michael Jordan, Charles Barkley were in your same draft class from what Abby and I know. And I mean, obviously we weren't born yet, but looking at basketball history, the eighties and nineties were some of the most transformational and like pivotal years in building the NBA's fan base and games being televised in terms of money for the league, just everything kind of blowing up. So what was it like from like a cultural perspective being part of that and now looking back seeing the impact that the years you played had on NBA culture?
1: Well, even though I had my dreams Lauren, it still just it didn't seem like it was possible to to play against the the greatest players of all time. I think that that my era was the greatest ever and it started with Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. Their rivalry was was so intense, and it fed the rest of the league. Um, everybody had a dominant center, and I know that the current fans will say, well, players today are more athletic. They can all shoot threes. I still think the game is won with physicality and toughness and size and rebounding and and so I, I am. Um, I look at the era that I played. You can look at the Celtics and the Lakers, but the Sixers and the Bulls were were, were dominant as well. Um, there were there were so many great Hall of Fame players that that I'm um, set a standard for today. So I. I I just, um, I, I was really fortunate to have a chance to play against so many great players.
0: When you were playing, did you know that you were playing through what would become such a memorable part of history? Did you know you were living through that, or was it kind of after the fact, looking back?
1: Yeah, looking back on it, I appreciate it more. Uh, when when I was playing, and I, I was very fortunate. The first five years of my career, I had a chance to to start a lot with some really good players. And then I had some, some devastating knee injuries, my career just started to plummet. And so I think that when you're in the middle of it, it it's, you know, you're like in the middle right. of a storm, everything's coming at you so fast. And um, and, I, and I can remember so many times walking out for the center jump and shaking hands with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and thinking, my gosh, he's the greatest center in history. I, I remember being, you know, 15 years old, sitting there with my dad, watching him play and being unstoppable. And and so I just, it, it really, I used the word surreal earlier. That's really what it felt like, because I I couldn't believe I was actually in there doing it. I just wanted to prolong it as long as I pos- possibly could.
2: Can you explain to people, because I feel like, you know, everyone in their mind puts these types of athletes like Kareem and Michael and like all these people on a unnatural unhuman realm and you in that moment, like, did it ever enter your mind? I am good enough to be on the same court as these people. Like, can you explain a little bit of that feeling? Did you still feel like that 15 year old boy? Like, Oh my gosh, this is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Like, what am I going to do? Or were you like, okay, like I deserve to be here. I've got skin in the game. And
1: yeah, I do. And when I was in college, maybe I lacked some confidence, um, but everything seemed to fall into place. And all of a sudden I was the 12th pick and I was flying out to play for the Seattle Supersonics and try to get ready for training camp. And then all of a sudden there were a couple of players that got injured and I was a starter. Um, and then later on as my career advanced, I, I remember um, you know having lunch with Julius Irving playing golf with Charles Barkley, you know Patrick Ewing was my teammate, and I was his backup. Um, you know, I I met some of my 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 massive heroes along the way. Um, being interviewed on national TV, like all these things, they just they they sort of became part of your existence. But then all of a sudden, when you retire and it's over with, you look back and you say. Oh my gosh I can't believe that that I had a chance to do that and when I talked to my son who was actually he's done with his basketball career now but he was a college player and it was just um you know when I told him some stories that that just you know I met Muhammad Ali and I was telling him about you know that that lunch that experience or that that I was able to um you know I traveled here to play or you know, so-and-so is my teammate. It's just, it was, it was really, it was really fun.
2: So you probably got some great, like two truths and a lie.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yes. I, 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 I'll answer anything you want, but I'm not playing two truths and a lie with you.
2: (laughs) You won't be able to think of a lie at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. So how do you think that this changed you as a person throughout each of these transitions in your career? I mean, I think that, every team you can learn something or you know look back on and say I wish I would have done this more and I'm this is what I'm gonna do moving forward do you think that you are thankful for the transitions and you appreciated them for what they were in that time in your career
1: that's a really really good one Um, so I, I developed some things that have helped me in life after basketball for instance I think that I'm pretty good at perseverance. Um, during the course of my career, I had ten knee surgeries, um, you know, two two shoulder surgeries, two surgeries on my retinas, um, concussions, and broken bones, and and so I, I kind of feel like whatever comes up, that I can I can manage pretty well. Uh, I also think that when you when you think about the fact that I was drafted by Cleveland, traded to Seattle, Philadelphia. Um, you know, New Jersey, Houston, Atlanta, New York, I, I had a chance to play in a lot of different cities for different coaches and different systems. And what I learned is a lot of different ways of looking at the game of basketball, a lot of anecdotes, a lot of, a lot of strategies. So the fact that I'm a broadcaster now, I think that helped me a, a great deal. And then also just from a confidence standpoint that when you when you have a, a barrier in front of you, I, I think that it's easy to get displaced or lose confidence. I feel like I'm pretty confident that I can walk into any room and be able to manage the situation. So there were there were a lot of perks that came along with just being a basketball player.
0: From what you just said, becoming a broadcaster was kind of a natural next step once you were done playing. But what advice would you give to somebody who didn't play a sport or didn't grow up in sports that wants to become a broadcaster?
1: Lauren, it's important to become an expert. You have to study the game, you have to practice. And when, when I give a speech or broadcast the game, I, I am relentless with my work ethic. I, I spend, I spend countless hours watching game film, talking to coaches, um, I write out all of my notes and my thoughts and then I rework them and then I, I read them and try to, to memorize a lot of them so that when you start broadcasting, you, you don't go back to your same old cliches that, that you have new and fresh ideas, you know, rather than, you know, just say he fell down, you know, it's looked like he slipped on a banana peeler, mm-hmm. you know, just something that's just a little bit quirkier, a little bit different than than what you always say so I am um, I work at it really really hard and I think that goes back to when I was a little kid my dad said if you want to be good you need to outwork your competition and I always remember he said that remember every day there's somebody out there working and if he outworks you when you play him and you will play him at some point he's going to beat you and so I always kept that in the back of my mind that I was I was playing and practicing against this this, this mystery man, and I just wanted to make sure I was ready.
2: Do you think that being a player really molded you and prepared you for becoming a broadcaster? Because like you said, you had to do all these interviews, and you always get asked questions after games. Do you think being on the other side of the camera, hearing the questions, knowing what you enjoyed answering as a player, didn't enjoy answering, do you think that that has kind of molded you to become a great broadcaster?
1: Well, there's um there's two parts of that. There, there's no doubt that the the stories and the observations and the game film you watch as a player prepares you to a certain point. But I remember my first game ever as a broadcaster, it was the Detroit Pistons and the San Antonio Spurs. And with zero experience as a broadcaster, I was broadcasting an NBA game and I was so overmatched and overwhelmed. And I just found myself saying things like, wow, that was a nice shot. And and that, that doesn't work because the fans that are watching the game, well, they just saw that it went in. Yeah, that was a nice shot. But, you know, I, I started to learn that, well, I know that they, they, they ran a play with a single double screen on the baseline and the defense hedged and he faded back to the corner. Like that's the kind of information that fans want to hear. So it was a slow process uh, and it, it took a long time to get to a point where I thought, Okay, I'm starting to do better. I'm, I'm getting pretty good at this.
2: And was there a tough balance of finding player lingo and then broadcasting lingo? Because if you wanted to talk like a player, you know, you could the entire broadcast. And a lot of people, unless they've played, may not exactly know what you're talking about. But how do you balance Okay, any audience that's watching will know this. And then it's got some juice for people that know the game of basketball and players as well.
1: Yeah. So, both to you, Lauren, and you, Abby, the, the advice that I think is so special for, for young broadcasters is people love anecdotes and stories. Um, there's an old Indian proverb. I hope I get this right. Um, Tell me a fact and I learn. Tell me a truth and I believe. Tell me a story. And it will resonate in my heart forever, and and that was something I heard earlier, and I thought, yeah, that that's accurate. Like I, I don't want to I don't want to hear that um, you know he's a really good shooter. I want to know that his dad took him in the backyard every day for twelve straight years, and they did this drill, and it made a difference. And so when I uh, when I prepare for a game, I, I typically talk to a sports information director for you know, a half hour to 40 minutes and I write down all the information because I'll forget it if I don't. And then I talk to an assistant coach for the same amount of time. I write down all of these stories and these, these anecdotes. And then when I get to the practice or the pregame, I'll find the players for each team, the three guys on, on the home team, three from the visitors. And I'm, I'm going to ask them for insight and stories that, that will show why they're a good player or why they've been on a hot streak. By knowing the players to get to the free throw line, I just know that the first time DeMar DeRozan steps to the foul line, I know, and I know he's going to get there, I've got a story that I asked him about mm-hmm. that that is either going to be a little bit funny or it's going to be super insightful or it's going to tell the story on why he's doing this particular move. And 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 I write those down too. So as soon as Demar Derozan steps to the line, you know I can I can go right to my notes and say, you know, Demar told me that the secret to his success he eats ice cream before every game or what, whatever it may be. And that way you're saying, wow, that's kind of interesting. I never never knew that before. Maybe I'll go have a bowl of ice cream.
0: Speaking of storylines, right now, I feel like you turn on ESPN and you can watch any league playing right now. There's almost so much going on. It's almost hard to keep track of. In one of your recent podcast episodes, you talk about a lot of the sacrifices that NBA players are having to make in the bubble. And we're seeing a lot of other sports leagues not working out. I mean, the MLB is having games canceled and postponed and the NBA bubble is working. So can you walk us through what sacrifices are they making and why is it working in the NBA, but other players and other leagues haven't either been willing or able to do the same?
1: The bubble is the key. The players cannot leave and they don't want to leave because they would be laying their team down. So the key word there is accountability. They they have rules and they have to follow them. Um, and, and number two is the testing. You just have to know that everybody's starting out the day and they're safe. And, and that gives everybody the confidence that they can go out and play. Baseball and football, I worry about because they're going to be testing every other day. Players are living at home. Um, They're they're living with their families that are out in the world contracting viruses and and it's just it's impossible to control the spread right now until we have a vaccine. I talk to the players on a daily basis. That's part of my job with the NBA Players Association. And they said that it's been a a really wonderful experience so far. They're surprised by it. Uh, They they golf with their friends. They go fishing and all of those little bass ponds that are, are next to the golf holes. They have boat rides that they can go on. There are never released movies that are available. They go play cards with guys from other teams. They see their their former teammates. They never really get a chance to, to catch up with. So it's really been, it's it's been a, a very good plan that's been executed. And I I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of a lot of other leagues, maybe even college, college basketball learns from this.
0: Talking about college sports. And again, going back to your podcast, you kind of proposed a NBA bubble like scenario that could work for the big 10 or college basketball. But One question I have is, do you think that if there's not a college football season, they will still try to make basketball happen? Like, are they going to approach every sport individually or will it be NCAA sports, college sports as a whole?
1: So Lauren, the plan that I propose is based on the fact that I just don't see how college football can pull it off in such a short amount of time. They're going to get together. They're going to practice. They're going to be trying to hold things together. And then you have you know, 5,000 or 10,000 or 20,000 students coming from all over the country back to their schools. And I feel like colleges are going to really struggle to keep the virus under control. And, you know, all these football players, look, I I remember when I was, I was in college, I, you know, on Friday night, I didn't want to stay in my dorm. I wanted to go out to a party. I wanted to go to a bar. I wanted to socialize.
0: Wanted to go to skeeps. Right?
1: Yes, 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 <laughs> yes. You were there. And and so I just believe that, that football with 100 guys in the team is not going to be able to pull this up. But there is a scenario for college basketball, which I think would work. And that's that I've, I've read a lot that colleges are going to send all their students home at Thanksgiving, and then they're going to leave them there until sometime in early January. That creates a huge opportunity for college basketball because you're going to have dormitories on every campus that are empty i propose that, that the coaches and the players all move in together into the dorm they go through a quarantine process they go through a training camp and then have everybody meet at two different campuses and i picked based on the big 10 football model of having the east and the west that that you have the seven east football teams um, that would be, let's see, Michigan, Michigan state, Indiana, Ohio state, Penn state, Maryland Rutgers, maybe I'm missing somebody, but all those teams would go to Penn state. They would all stay in the dorm with their coaches. And then all the teams from the West would go to Iowa, stay in the dorm, stay with their coaches. And you would have a massive tournament right there where everybody can play against each other. You could have eight, eight teams, seven games and, in, and, in, in eight days, And then all of a sudden, you've got some momentum going. And and I think that's doable to me.
2: So I have a question that I've been dying to ask since all of COVID. Well, really, since everyone's kind of reshaped the way that we're playing because of COVID. But as an ex-player, is COVID somewhat of an ideal situation? Because it's no media, no press, no annoying fans. Your family's not asking for 25 tickets every game. You don't have to worry about... All of the little things that maybe you didn't necessarily sign up for when you wanted to become an athlete, but it kind of comes with it. And then, kind of like the back end of that, I guess, is it effective or do you think that the players are playing better because there's not fans there? I know they have the cutouts and everything, but does it feel too much of a practice with silence and? you know, recorded fan sounds streaming in.
1: I think that in the bubble, I think the players are really enjoying shooting with close backgrounds. Sometimes in NBA arenas, you've got, you know, you've got 500 yards to the back of the arena and the sight lines aren't great. So being in a small gym, that's something that I think is an advantage. I also believe that Every one of these guys has played AAU basketball. You're playing in somebody else's gym at eight in the morning and there's nobody there and you have to find a way to get motivated to play. They're back to their roots right now. And imagine, you know, LeBron James had a game last night and after the game, they don't have locker rooms with showers there. So LeBron got done with his game. He went and talked to uh, the media via Zoom and then he grabbed a Gatorade and he walked across the campus at the Disney facility and went to his room to shower. So, you know, it's just, it takes them back to a comfortable place. And I, I really think that the players are very well suited for this. There's no hecklers there. There's obviously not fans patting you on the back and, and, you know, encouraging you too, but I think the players are really mm-hmm. ad- adapting well. And I haven't seen any drop off whatsoever. I, I think that they came in right of play and it's been very competitive
0: seems like it's giving them more opportunities for team bonding.
1: Yes. So they've had some influential speakers that the players have have listened to. There's been a lot of opportunities for for guys to talk to other players for instance. You know, so and so played at Missouri and you know, there's an, another player that was there before them that they don't know very well or so and so was a teammate with them when they were both in Orlando and they haven't seen them in years. So there's all kinds of opportunities to get together and play cards and to to network and to, to, to build relationships. I also think that like, I, I would have loved to meet, to meet Greg Popovich, you know, and if you're, if you're going to the cafeteria and he's, he's sitting there, what a great opportunity to walk over and introduce yourself. Um, You might see a lot of players Doing the the super teams too, where like you think, wow, wow I can't believe that guy went to play with so and so, but they became friends in the bubble, and that that could happen as well.
2: Yeah, and I'm really excited for the style that it's going to put back into basketball because you know the 80s and 90s. I think basketball was so fun to watch because you could tell that the players were having fun. Yes. And I do think that that has kind of changed in basketball now. I mean, a lot of people feel that it's a little dramatic or, you know, there's just not that essence and, and yeah, and swag and just like, we're going to, we're going to do what we came to do and that's basketball and how we play, whether you like it or not, is how we play. Like the Pistons bad boys era is my favorite situation of basketball because it's just, I mean, it is back to the roots and it's, It's fun and that's what people enjoy seeing. So I really do hope that COVID kind of brings out the fun and kind of takes away the seriousness that basketball was kind of getting into the routine of prior to COVID.
1: You know, Abby, it's also possible that that it may unmask a whole generation of basketball fans that never realized how great it was because baseball season starting and, you know, as an example, My, my dad had me playing baseball when I was very young. He would take me to the field and and throw me batting practice. So we played catch and we watched every Detroit Tigers game. And so that's what I grew up with. There's, there's the possibility, like there's no, there's no Tigers baseball this weekend. And so my dad loves sports. So he's going to be watching basketball. And I I think there's going to be a lot of fans that, that are unearthed based on watching this. And do you guys have a favorite who's going to win the NBA championship this year? Lakers, Lakers. That's a safe call. I like that.
0: Tim, that's a good question for you on that note. How meaningful do you think the championship is going to be after such a pause in play?
1: I think it's going to be the greatest accomplishment. This is something nobody has ever experienced, trying to, to play in a bubble. You take three months off, you're sitting there thinking there's never going to be a season, and all of a sudden you're you're right in the middle of it. Every Every single game is on national TV. I, I think that this year's champion deserves a ton of credit rather than there's no asterisk behind this title. that This is going to be very well earned.
2: So we saw when conference attorneys got shut down um, that there was no set plan for the entire NCAA and each conference made its own decisions. So what is your take on that? Do you think that that it should have been handled like throughout the board or do you think that it was better that each made their own decision?
1: I was sitting... in in Brooklyn, ready to broadcast the first round of the Atlantic 10 tournament on NBC Sports. Uh, I believe it was VCU against UMass. And the players were warming up and they they knew that the Big Ten had canceled and the Pac-12 had canceled. Everybody was so uncertain. The coaches didn't know what to do. I think that, that that's a situation where your governing body, the NCAA, should have stepped forward and said, this, this doesn't make sense. As an example of the A-10, you've got 12 teams from different states and they were bringing their band and their fans and the players are grabbing their mouth guard and they put it back in. They pass the ball. Like it's just, it's, it was not a sterile environment. I think that somebody should have been the big boy in the room and just said, okay, this does not make sense. Everybody go home. You know, we'll figure this out at a later date. And it didn't happen. And it was really kind of disappointing. My game was canceled with three minutes and 27 seconds left on the clock before the tip off. The players were very confused. It was sad.
0: Follow up about college basketball. Like you said, nobody stepped up to the plate to make a decision about the conference tournaments back in February, early March. And then obviously we didn't have March Madness. Do you think that's going to be similar with return to play? Might we see the Big Ten play because they have a better plan, but other conferences not end up having a season.
1: The Big Ten and everyone has the opportunity to sit back and watch and learn. And and I think that the NBA is, is creating a model that is substantial and successful. And I think that baseball may shut down, um, which would be sad for everyone. So that's an advantage for the Big Ten for football and for basketball to try to come up with a plan that they think will work because as we've seen, if you if you let you know 19 and 20 year olds and, and pro athletes just roam around, they they're going to get the virus and they're going to spread it. I, I just don't see a scenario where you say, Hey guys, here's the plan be really disciplined, make great decisions. Don't go around anybody, social distancing, wear your mask. It's not going to work. Like players want freedom. And I also think it's very interesting that young people are not influenced by this. So they don't have fear. And that puts older people in jeopardy, but it also puts your sports teams in jeopardy too.
0: Well, I've seen that even just day-to-day life living in Chicago. I mean, I go out to restaurants with some of my friends on the weekend and Almost every single person there is in their 20s. I mean, I'm not going to speak for everybody, but being in a big city in Chicago, it's like all the rates have, and I think across the country, they've increased Mm -hmm. in Abby and I's age group. And so I can't imagine if I was back in Ann Arbor right now, I would not be staying home.
1: If you went to a party, would you wear a mask?
0: You know, I think if it was me now, I would, but if this was me two years ago in college still, I don't think that I would.
1: Right. And I, I had a podcast with um, a group of high school players that I, I've been working with over the last eight years. And and I said, in a lot of ways, this is the equivalent of of having a character check. Like you've got a moral compass and you've got to make the hard decisions. And just like we're encouraging them, when you go to a party. And there are people that are drinking and are smoking. You, you have to make that decision. Am I a leader or am I a follower? Right. And it's really, really hard. And I, I totally get it that when you walk into the party, you don't want to be, out of 100 people there, the one person that's wearing a mask. But, you know, if, if, if you're going home that weekend and you're going to see your, your family, you also right. have to make that hard decision, too, and think about them. So I, I, I get it. It's hard.
2: But it is, it is a character check for sure. So going back to a little bit of March Madness, I mean, how much does this affect the 2020 draft? Because I feel like a lot of players need the eyes, the views, and the chatter about March Madness because that could be a really pivotal breakout moment. And without that happening, it really does change a lot for maybe not the best players, but somebody that was kind of on the verge.
0: Just to follow on that question, I kept in touch with some players from Michigan or other players um, that are in that position. Their season got cut short. They stopped playing in March. Now they're trying to prepare for the draft. I've tried to ask them questions like, you know, what are you doing? They're just working out by themselves in gyms and they're having Zoom interviews and Zoom calls. But when it comes to the draft this year, are the decisions going to be made upon their play up until March. And are these players at a huge disadvantage now?
1: Well, everybody's at a disadvantage because think about the NCAA tournament every year. There are 10 or 12 guys that carry their teams deep into the, the NCAA tournament. Right. And the NBA says, wow, wow. That, you know, you've got to be special to do that. And, and we need that guy. Well, that's been eliminated. So that 10 or 12 player group aren't going to get a chance to showcase themselves so a lot of them might end up coming back to college as an example Luca Garza might have been the national player of the year right Obi Toppin might have been the national player of the year if they take their team to the final four and they completely dominate all of a sudden they're they're a top five pick everybody's going to want a guy that can take his team through March Madness now on the other side of it the NBA has to be thinking, okay, there's going to be more mistakes made in this draft than any time in history, because we didn't get a chance to interview them, we didn't get a chance to measure them. You know, what what if you draft a guy, and all of a sudden you thought he was six eight, but now he's only six six because he got an inaccurate um, reading in the program? Yeah, there's a huge number of reasons why you could make a massive mistake. And that's the reason that the the draft combine and rookie transition program, all these things are so in flux because the NBA is afraid to draft guys that they don't know about.
0: If we can't have a college basketball season starting up this winter, are these guys who I think of Isaiah Livers at Michigan, who just went back and is going to play another year, but... If they can't have that season, are NBA dreams just being crushed? How is that going to be approached moving forward? Is the NBA just going to take a shot in the dark and keep drafting this year and next year, even if we've gone a full season and a half of college sports without play?
1: Well, next year, there'll be 30 players that are drafted that are first-round picks that will get guaranteed, and there's probably you know, another 30 players that will be second round picks that will have to try out there, there will be training camps at some point. Um, there's not going to be a summer league, but there will be a G league and guys will go there. And, and eventually there will be a settling process where we figure out who can play and who can't, but I'm also thinking about, let's say for instance, you, you mentioned Isaiah Livers, you talked to Michigan basketball, Franz Wagner, um, They've got Hunter Dickinson coming in. He has one-and-done possibilities. So you've got all these guys coming in, yeah. but you also have a class coming in next year. So what are you going to do with them? You can't have 17 guys on your team. If there's no season this year, Franz and Isaiah, could they come back? I don't know. What about the, the three or four recruits that are coming in behind them? You know, There's going to be – and then right now in the, the NCAA transfer portal – there are 950 players that have entered the portal and they want to leave. Where are they going to go? I, I, I quite frankly don't have any idea. I think that the players that want to transfer will be eligible, but th- this is going to be mass chaos.
0: What advice would you give to some of those players who are in college still or trying to be drafted in 2020 what would you tell yourself if you were going through that right now to stay competitive
1: well the hardest thing is I'm afraid that a lot of the players are looking at the potential of no season and there's no motivation for them to get in the gym and and work hard you know right now typically guys would be thinking okay you know, school's going to be in one month and we start official conditioning. And, and, and you know, in in two months, we're going to start our practices. I've got to get going. This is my dream. I'm going to get in the best shape of my life. But now they're thinking, there's probably no football this fall. And who knows about basketball? And we may not start a season until December or January or February. Who knows? That, that uncertainty is going to cloud their, their work ethic, I'm afraid,
2: Well, you have had to face many recovery trials and, you know, you know, the triumph of that. So I do feel like it's not an injury break necessarily, but it is a stop of play and your momentum's down and, you know, you are looking around at all of the things that are stopping and, you know, especially at that early age, you kind of question like, is this worth it? Why am I doing this? Um, And I do feel like a lot of, negative things can come into a young player's mind sitting in the dorm by himself. Do you feel that he or she is going to look at kind of the negatives of this season, or do you think that they can kind of channel something bigger than themselves and see a positive?
1: Well, Abby, the the leadership is going to come to the forefront here. As an example, I think you said earlier, you think the Lakers are going to win it all. LeBron James is the best leader in our league. And Anthony Davis is a great leader. They've got a bunch of veteran guys that are, are self-starters, have been self-starters throughout their college and NBA career. That's where it really becomes important. Does a college coach have a great rapport with his players? Does he have an amazing staff? Does he have veteran players that are loaded with character that, that will say, okay, this, this is a bad deal, but um, I'm going to set a standard for my teammates. I'm going to put my arm around those young freshmen say, come on, young fellow, follow me. You need to pick up the pace. You need to work hard. Leadership is going to be so critically important.
0: Do you think leadership is one of the qualities that is going to make players who are kind of stuck in limbo right now, more competitive to be drafted? Do you think NBA teams are going to look at players and say, you know, we haven't seen him play since March, but at least we've seen these leadership qualities come out during this time?
1: I think it'd be really hard to be on an NBA coaching staff or to be in the front office because they have nothing but hours. And what they're going to do is rather than watch every game from a player's senior year, they're going to say, okay, you know, we need to go back and watch him as a freshman. You know, we'll take it from that angle. Where was he as a freshman? How much has he improved each year? Is he a hard worker? They're going to do deeper dives into the due diligence. They're going to say, my gosh, this is great. We found some high school AAU video on him. Let's watch that. They're going to be consuming information more than ever before.
0: They're going to look at the transformation and the transition rather than the last show that they've given.
2: Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on the show with us. I mean, I for sure have learned something and. I hope that somebody hears this that can make some moves and, you know, we can get into some of the things that we talked about here and we can see that implemented in the seasons to come. I miss talking college basketball. So this is great.
0: Thank you, Tim.
1: You guys are great. I I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on.